Chapter One of the Steel Hammer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Steel Hammer by Louis Olbach. Translated by Elizabeth Wormley Latimer. Chapter One The Overture. About twenty years ago, the three clerks in the office of Maitre Boisselot, a notary in one of the suburbs of Paris, were making the most of the temporary absence of the head of the firm to tell all sorts of stories about him and to confide to one another all their love affairs. They were interrupted at the most interesting moment, the very moment when each young Don Juan, incited by emulation, vanity, or a love of drawing the long bow, was about to reveal the name of the lady who was to be his future conquest by a knock at the door. A young man with an intelligent face, pallid, however, from overwork, sickness, or anxiety, and with restless, anxious eyes, presented himself with a letter in his hand, and in a pleasant voice, though somewhat out of breath, asked humbly if Maitre Boisselot was in. Now replied the youngest of the three clerks somewhat roughly. He was provoked at having lost the opportunity of informing his elders how much notice Madame Boisselot was disposed to take of him, and besides he belonged by birth, instinct, and vocation to that class of French employees, very numerous in our day, which was never intended to serve the public, but for whom the public is a natural prey. It will be understood why, after this, I abstain from telling exactly what suburban district Maitre Boisselot set up his conjugal establishment, and flaunted the imperial arms over his office-door. The reader is at liberty to locate him where he pleases, provided he chooses some place not far from Paris, and on the bank of the Seine, saint Cloud, for instance, uh, Sorez, Puteaux, Neuilly, uh, Corbevoir, Asnières to which places, however, I would not wish to limit his suppositions. "'Will he be in soon?' asked the visitor, whom the little clerk had snapped at so fiercely. The head clerk, who in the absence of the chief took his place in the office, and whose dignity forbade him to bark and snap at strangers, said with an assumption of importance, "'Have you come to speak to Maitre Boisselot about business, or is it only that you wish to see him?' "'I have received this letter, and have come as soon as I could. Am I too late?' As he said this, somewhat timidly, he put out his hand toward the desk with the letter. The chief clerk snatched it at once, and glancing over it, said, "'Ah, then you are Monsieur Jean Mortier?' "'Yes, monsieur.' Uh, "'You have come about the money left by Monsieur Mortier Fondard. "'No, no, you are not too late. On the contrary.' A letter names four o'clock, and it is only three. Besides, if Monsieur Boisselot were in, he could do nothing without the presence of Monsieur Pierre Mortier. Ah, said Jean Mortier, with a half-sigh, turning a little paler than before, is my cousin summoned too? The chief clerk smiled. Of course. Are you not both in the same degree heirs of the deceased? Jean Mortier, in his turn, had a gleam in his eye, sudden and flickering, and a smile came to his lips when the clerk uttered the word, heirs. 
"'I will come back again,' he said softly. "'Oh, no, you can wait,' said the chief clerk, with a sigh of resignation. "'Oh, I am afraid I shall disturb you,' said Jean Mortier. This time the clerks made him no answer. He had made his remark out of pure politeness, having no idea of departing because he had arrived before his cousin. He thought, indeed, it was a piece of luck. Fortune might work some miracle in the will in order to regard the one of the two heirs who had been most eager to court her good graces. He took a chair. He carried it into one corner of the office, and to disarm both the hostility of the clerks and avert any evil influences that might chance to be hovering around the place where reposed the written testament, he sat down noiselessly, turned his head away from the three young men, and set to work to study the backs of the bundles of law papers arranged on shelves around the office, above the stand for the portfolios and the pictures of the chief officials of the department. Did he realize that those dusty archives, each packet of which was ticketed with its own date, were the glory of all law offices? That false ones are sometimes exhibited when the office is not so fortunate as to be possessed of many old ones, and that these yellow papers are intentionally never dusted, like wine bottles at a wine merchant's that are engarlanded with cobwebs, or the big empty bottles with mysterious tickets, and the pots of fancy salves which are the unfailing ornaments of all druggists' establishment. He looked as if he were admiring them. Most likely he did not even see them. At the end of five minutes his eyes seemed fixed on one particular bundle of papers, but his thoughts were far away. They were rushing after the notary, after the cousin he expected. He was half wild with impatience, though he sat so still. Some drops of sweat, which he dared not wipe from his forehead, attested his anxiety. From time to time he opened his mouth to give passage to a sigh, which he arrested before it passed his lips, and one of his hands, which held his cap, a cloth cap such as is worn by artisans, kept smoothing it slowly rolling it up, squeezing it together, and then suddenly it would be stretched out with a gesture of utter weariness and despair. Jean looked like a man who was half a workman, an artisan who had set up for himself. His jacket of brown cloth was almost a coat. His cravat and his shoes were those of a tradesman who goes round to houses to take orders but his apron of green stuff which showed under his jacket, and his upholsterer's hammer with its long handle, which stuck half out of the front pocket of the apron, showed that he was a fellow who looked after his own business, as they say in the counting-room. Jean did put his own hand to his work, and he had just broken off some that he was eager in doing to come as fast as possible on the summons of the notary. He was tall, thin, and well-made, with a quantity of black hair thrown back from his face, and displaying a high, broad forehead. But his look also indicated either a confirmed habit, or the affectation of a habit, of indulging in sad, passionate, and feverish thoughts, the kind of thoughts which make a man pass his hands through his hair nervously. He had expressive eyes, dreamy yet resolute, a small, well-formed mouth, a moustache as black as his hair, and shapely hands, manifestly the kind of hands to plate up stuffs, and possibly to model in plaster. 
Jean Mortier needed only to unfasten his green apron and to change his hammer for a sheaf of painter's brushes or a sculptor's tool to have passed for an artist anywhere. The clerks made believe to be very busy, but the youngest made too much noise with his pen to be writing, and the one above him did not make enough. He had a pencil in his hand, and looked up at Jean Mortier more often than he would have done had he not been busy with a sketch of him, or rather a caricature. As for Monsieur, the chief clerk, he was visibly writing with rapidity and attention, only it was not an office paper, and it was more likely to her whose client he was than to any client of his master, Maitre Boisselot. Jean Mortier had been waiting about twenty minutes when the door of the office was again opened. "'Is Monsieur Boisselot in?' asked a rough voice, the voice of a peasant. He was dressed in a coarse cloth jacket with heavy shoes upon his feet and a hat with a broad brim, which he did not remove till he felt himself firmly balanced on two legs that were by nature somewhat bandy. His face was red with no particular expression, and a good deal furrowed. It was that of a cattle-breeder or a horse-dealer. It was easy to see that he was a man accustomed to attend markets, and to settle his transactions at the cabaret. He walked up to the big desk that had two fronts to it, on which the clerks were leaning, much as if he were in a drinking-place and going up to the counter. A sharp-cornered shirt-collar of coarse linen showed that he had brushed up his toilet for the occasion. The collar kept rubbing against his whiskers, which were cut round below his cheekbones. His waistcoat was of black velveteen with metal buttons. He had taken it out of his closet for this visit, but it was so short in the waist that it was with difficulty dragged down to meet the waistband of his trousers. These trousers were of corduroy, and every time he moved the shirt peeped out like a line of white foam between the two disjointed parts of his habiliments. "'Monsieur Boisselot is out,' replied the chief clerk, who then put the same question as he had before put to Jean Mortier. "'All right,' he said when it was answered. "'You can wait with this other gentleman who is here on the same business.' The peasant turned quickly and then cried out with an air of forced gaiety, "'Tiens, is that you, cousin?' "'How are you, Pierre?' Uh, "'Better than you are, I should think, for you look as sallow as a Parisian. <laughs> Have they sent for you, too?' Uh, "'Yes, it seems that our uncle's will concerns both of us.' Jean said this with rather a troubled voice. Pierre began to laugh, but very probably his laugh was not quite genuine. <laughs> I fancied I was going to be the only one concerned, he said. But never mind, the pile is big enough for both of us. Uh, you think Uncle had at least a hundred thousand francs of one kind and another? A hundred thousand francs? repeated Jean, with his lips trembling and a bright light came into his eyes, which betrayed, or rather increased, his anxiety and suffering. Yes, so that if the will divides it between us, divides it, exclaimed Jean with a sigh. Pierre misinterpreted the sigh. He suddenly seized a chair, sat down close to his cousin, and tapping him on the knee with a familiarity as little sincere as his late laugh, said, Do you happen to know anything about it, cousin? 
No, I know nothing except that I was ordered to come here today. The peasant turned toward the clerks. And you, gentlemen, he said, have you any idea what your employer is going to tell us? These clerks, whose fun had been broken in upon, and who were all ready for anything else in that line, grinned at one another. The impatience on the part of an heir was nothing new to them, but it always diverted them. Monsieur Boissardin is not in the habit of telling us things before the papers have to be drawn out, replied the one in authority. All right, we'll wait. After a short silence, Pierre began again in an insinuating tone. Yes, ah, cousin, it's a long time since we saw each other. <laughs> That's the way in families. If there were no funerals, no marriages, and no wills, one never would meet. And even now, Uncle Matthew, unsociable old rascal, died and was buried without letting us know. <laughs> and you, Jean, never asked us to your wedding. I felt sure you would not come. Oh, well, perhaps not. <laughs> Are you a happy pair? A happy pair, yes. Have you any children? One little girl, three years old. No more than that. <laughs> and business, how does that get on? Ah, business. Jean raised his eyes to the ceiling. Pierre saw at once part of the secret of his cousin's paleness, and by an impulse that was not ill-natured, but simply the exuberance of a lucky man who is sensible of his own advantages, he slapped his breeches pocket, saying, "'Well, I am satisfied. Since the empire came in, cattle have been high. Fodder is plenty. But a little farm like mine costs a great deal. One has to be stirring, and then fertilizers are so dear. The more people invent, the more money it takes to keep up with their inventions. People will end by rotting banknotes into the soil.' I tell you frankly that if Uncle has left me my share, he has done me a big service. Did you see him often? asked Jean. Pierre, who had taken off his round hat and put it between his legs, ruffled up his hair with a wave of his hand. Yes, he said, I went to see him sometimes. He emphasized the word sometimes with an air of importance. I never went, said the upholsterer. Eh, it was unlucky, the peasant could not refrain from saying, with a swelling of his breast that seemed like sorrow, that I did not go and see him the week he died. But there was a fair at the Provence, a cattle fair. I could not miss it. I was greatly vexed when I came back and found the letter that told me he was dead. I only hope he did not think it hard of me. Oh, he wouldn't think it worse of you than of me. We shall see. I have not put on mourning yet, nor have you, as far as I see. I have had too much mourning in my heart for the other kinds. Pierre again looked at his cousin and seemed satisfied with this inspection. It is true, he said, that he was uh, displeased with you for preferring the city to the country and having married without consulting him. I did everything I could, however, to make him forgive me. I, I wrote to him kindly a month ago. Pierre drew back his chair. I did not know of that, 
he said. "'You might have known of it since you saw him so often.' "'Ah! He was so close-mouthed. What did you say to him in your letter?' Jean hesitated. He had let himself be drawn on to say more than he intended. He was sorry for it. He looked at the clerks, the one who took the place of the notary and whom the chat between the cousins either did not amuse or amused extremely, he either wishing to hear no more or to hear it better, here interrupted them. "'If you like to go with me to Boisselot's private room, gentlemen,' he said, "'you may find it more agreeable to talk there.' Pierre and Jean Mortier bowed and went into the room pointed out to them. There they were nearer to their uncle's will. A swinging door of green oilcloth, on which a copper plate with black letters was fixed, seemed to make a double door, and to shelter the private room of the notary from indiscreet ears. But it chanced that the wooden door was open, and neither of the two cousins ventured to close it, while as to the swinging door it closed after them of itself, but in such a way as to leave a crack open so that all those in the office, with a little care and attention, could hear whatever was being said in Monsieur Boisselot's own room. When the two cousins had settled themselves uh, a second time, this time in two armchairs, the farmer asked again, "'What did you say to Uncle in your letter?' "'The truth, that my affairs were going wrong, that, do what I could, I could not make both ends meet.' that I was getting into debt, that I was expecting the moment, alas, when I should be obliged to give up my shop, and then I asked him to forgive me. Ah, uh, didn't show much spirit on your part. One does not seem to care for spirit when one has a wife and a little girl. Pierre became crimson. Sacre bleu, he said. I never would have asked him for a five-franc piece to buy tobacco with. "'and I sent him all his brandy. "'Didn't he answer you?' "'Yes.' "'Pierre's armchair creaked under him "'as he turned it round sharply without rising. "'Then,' he said fiercely, "'you know what to expect in the will. "'You have come here feeling certain?' "'No. "'Uncle answered that as soon as his rheumatism "'allowed him to come up to Paris, "'he would come and see me and satisfy himself "'as to the state of my affairs. "'That he was not angry with me.' but that was three weeks ago. He never had the strength or the time or the will, maybe, to make the visit. He told me not to come and see him. I waited for him very impatiently. My wife made a nouvain, a nine days devotion, at Saint-Genevieve for his cure. Instead of his visit, I got the notary's letter." He was dead, and, like you, I was not even notified to attend the funeral. No, it must have been his thief of a housekeeper who prevented that. Pierre's face was still very red, but he had lost, or he concealed, some of his ferocity. If you told him about your wife and little girl, he said, I think you may have touched him. Uncle, when he was young, had a very kind heart. I knew that he had settled up his affairs six months ago, but since you have received a letter just like mine, it is to be supposed that we are treated alike. Pierre made a great effort to calm himself. He gave a sigh. Jean sighed in his turn. 
"'I trust so,' he said. "'If not, what will become of me, and my wife, and the little one?' "'Is your trade a, a bad one?' asked Pierre, almost kindly. "'What it is it uh, you are doing, exactly?' "'I am an upholsterer.' "'You went away from home to be an artist.' "'Yes, I was too ambitious.' I have had to content myself with a trade where there is some room to show taste. I am fond of it. I think I should be able to do as well as most men if I had just some little capital. But the working upholsterer only makes up material that is given to him. He cannot invent new things. The few things that he has to buy use up all his resources. And then my wife has been sick. Since I married four years ago, I have been getting more and more into debt, and just as the notary's letter reached me, I received a notice on stamped paper, the last one before a failure. If tomorrow or the day after I have not anything to give my landlord on account, I shall be evicted, sold out, all for want of two thousand francs. So you see, I am very anxious. It seems as if the notary would never come. He got up, went to the window, lifted up the curtain, looked out into the street, saw nothing, and came back to his seat. So it seems people do fail in Paris, Pierre growled. I thought it was all a trick that they printed in advertisements and put up over the doors of their places of business to attract customers. Yes, cousin, men do fail. And they kill themselves sometimes in despair when they see their wife and child reduced to poverty. That's nonsense. That won't help them. What can a man do? Unless he robs a safe or waylays men in dark places to take their purses. Luckily, cousin, you have had the same letter as I. And uncle, you say, forgave you? May God hear you, cried Jean, wiping his forehead. Pierre's face had a queer smile. He thought the exclamation rather odd. Devil take him if he'd been thinking of any appeal to heaven. And so, he resumed with cruel persistence, you are not prosperous. No. You had better have stayed at home, done as I did, planted cabbages for your own eating, and sown wheat to have something to sell. Seen a little fun sometimes? and not have married. Oh, don't say anything against my marriage. It is the only joy in my life. Is your wife very pretty? She is very good, and very brave and patient. And the little one? Jean could not repress a smile. My little girl is very pretty. I hope she will grow up as good as her mother. Pierre, who had been thinking since he recovered himself, drew his chair close up to his cousin's, and said in a tone of rough bonhomie, "'Do you know an idea? Just come into my head. Since they have called us together about this inheritance, let, let us keep it together. Make a partnership of the inheritance. How would you like it, cousin?' "'I, I, don't, I, I don't understand,' stammered Jean. Well, we are both going to be his heirs, are we not? Or maybe one will have more than the other. Let us put our shares together. My trade is better than yours. 
Oh, I, I can prove it to you. Let us both take up my business and give up yours. It can be a partnership. You can pay your landlord, you can sell what things you have, and you can come and live with me at La Ferté Muiron. There's plenty of room there for your wife and little girl. It will do them good to have country air and fresh eggs from my chickens. Your wife seems to be rather devout, since she goes in for Nouvain. There's no harm in that. Our curé is a very good fellow. She can take him for her confessor. You can set to work. Between ourselves, it is not very difficult. It's a deal easier than knocking nails with that little tool. I should mash my fingers. Pierre was getting lively. He put his finger on the hammer which was sticking out of Jean's apron pocket. The upholsterer, much embarrassed by the proposition of his cousin, was glad of the chance to make no reply. He pulled his little tool out of his pocket and, handing it to Pierre, said, "'It is a present that was made me by my fellow workmen in the shop before I was married, when I invented a new way to drape hangings and a certain mode of hanging curtains, which got a medal at the exposition.' "'Did you get a medal, cousin? I have a medal, too. I got it at an agricultural exhibition.' "'Oh, I did not get the medal. My master put it on the heading of his bills. But my comrades thought I ought to be rewarded, and they gave me this themselves.' Pierre was handling the hammer. "'It's a very pretty thing,' he said. "'The handle is uh, ebony, isn't it?' "'Yes. The end looks as if it were silver.' It is steel, but beautifully polished. Ah, well, you can bring your hammer to the farm with you. We will use it to nail up the big harvest nosegay. No, Pierre, said Jean Mortier, gently, taking back his hammer. It will have to go on helping me in my trade, and if some day I want to smash my skull, he made a movement of placing the hammer on his temple and of striking a sharp blow. Pierre shrugged his shoulders. What a notion, he said. But then you could not do it. So you declined my proposal? Yes, cousin, but I thank you. If the will is favorable to me... He spoke these words in a trembling voice, hardly loud enough to be heard. But if it should not be, he added, perhaps you could help me with two or three thousand franc notes and... I would go on working at my business. Pierre became unfriendly. So, you prefer poverty? I love work. All that has kept me back has been a want of capital. As a journeyman I could always make a living, but I wanted to set up for myself before I had laid by enough money. I have suffered for it. That means that you are willing to work for other people and not for me. No. When one has gained one's liberty, it is better to keep it. I told you, cousin, that if I could pay my debts, and two or three thousand francs would be enough, I could go on. I could get straight. I, I have good courage. My wife and daughter would give it me if mine failed. My business is really a very good one. The present taste for luxury in houses is in its favor. And, and all the same, Pierre, I thank you for your kind thought of me. I will tell my wife how good you were. He stretched out his hand to his cousin, who made believe he did not see it. The farmer was wounded both in his pride and pocket. 
this refusal of partnership on the part of a man who was going undoubtedly to inherit quite as much as himself seemed to him a kind of robbery he got up from his chair and began to walk up and down monsieur boisselot's room to calm the blood which he felt rising to his head and whistling carelessly jean saw that he had wounded him and wishing to be friends with him said softly you must not be displeased with me cousin perhaps we can find some other way anyhow come and see me and make acquaintance with my wife and with the little girl where do you live in the village of boulogne what in the bois de boulogne if you expect to find customers there uh, no no not in the bois i have custom in the village i am not badly lodged come and see that is one reason why it would be so hard for me to go away i have families i serve at autuil at st cloud and st jean when we have done here come home and dine with me i can't to-day said pierre roughly then promise me to come soon some other time maybe i will give you my address jean felt in his pockets for a card the only one he found there was uh, that of a sheriff's officer he did not dare use that to write down his address but rising in his turn he took off of the notary's desk a grey envelope and with a great square pencil he always carried about with him to make measurements and whose black mark was almost as dark as ink he wrote down his name street and number tiens pierre when you want to come and see me or to write to me the farmer dared not refuse the envelope after all the offer might yet be accepted jean's wife possibly was not so proud as he and so long as the contents of their uncle's will were uncertain it was better to keep friends with a man who might just as likely have the bigger part as an equal share he took the envelope and put it in his side pocket he however had no time to renew his own offers or even to exhibit any more ill-humour the street door suddenly opened a magisterial step was heard then a few words passed between the chief clerk and the newcomer are they in there asked a sonorous voice the swinging door was pushed aside and maitre boisselot came in in haste with a bag of papers in his hand end of chapter one